the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 407 for Monday, July 9th, 2012. Good evening, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions. You send in your tips. You send in some cool stuff found. We try to provide some answers to your questions. We provide some tips and cool stuff found of our own. And together, we all try to learn a little something new each time we get together. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. Greetings, Mr. F. Braun. How are you this evening? Hey, had a, had, had a full day at the new, uh, the new uh, uh, 9 to 5 or 8.30 to 5 gig. It was a lot of fun. That's good. Kinda, I'm glad you kind of need to. It's kind of kind of need to, you know, join up again with the huddled masses that are, you know, schlepping to and from their corporate overlords. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's awesome. That's good. Yeah, I felt like a big boy. I felt like an adult today. So I took the train because both my house and this place are within walking distance of a nearby train station. That's cool. So I learned a terrible lesson that, um, well, number one. You got to ask questions right, and then, then we'll move on here. But, but what happened is that the train that I was on that connected to another train was late. It, it got there exactly at the time the other one had to leave, but it was on another platform. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I run up to the other train, and I'm is is this the whatever, whatever to whatever? You know, is this the, the A20 to New Canaan? And I said, and he's like, yep. And he takes off. <laughs> well, you didn't ask I mean, him to I, hold it. <laughs> no, no. I, I it, And, you know, he, he answered the question. I, I didn't present a demand. I could have said, can you, can you let me, if this is the A20, could you please let me on? Because the other train just got here and it was late. Yeah. But I didn't phrase it that way. I asked the question, he answered it, and then he hit the hand, he put the hammer down and took off. <laughs> I laid away a little longer, but it was just, sure. it, it was just such a, such a Dilbert-like situation. Yeah. That's awesome. I like that. Other than that, great place. Uh, played with all sorts of, uh, learned all new software today. These guys make uh, all sorts of sensors and stuff. And it, it was just, as you know, and, and most listeners know, this is the stuff I love. Low-level communication software, right. mucking about with hardware and making it do cool and interesting things. And uh, this is different type of hardware, but y- you know what we do also applies to the Mac and I devices. And with That's that cool. being said, I think we, we, we should get to the Mac and the I devices. That Cool people are talking about yeah i'm glad uh, i'm glad you're uh, you're you're able to do that again that's that's a good thing uh let's see. And do this and do this it, it, it are my two loves and uh, and, and you know I, I can lead a, a secret secret life that's right <laughs> which is not so secret but that's okay no they they know about this know. and they're just like you know how's this going to impact and i'm like well this this is you know this is uh i wouldn't say unimportant but it's it's more flexible this will work around that right. yes yeah exactly yeah. Like right now, like, for those that you don't know, or if you're listening, you do, but we're doing this at night. Monday night slot, time. which is uh, a very comfortable place for us uh, based on where we, I think we've done more Monday night shows than any other time slot, probably. Hmm. Yeah. Cause we, we shifted to Monday night, like by show like 40 or something. And we were there till show 200 and something. So anyway, it's good. This show sponsored by bare bones. We're going to talk about them later, but I, I wanted to. Make sure I mention that before we go to Michael, who has, uh, you know, I always I always love these questions, which involve the summertime and traveling and trying to make technology work while you're away. And we had one in the last show and we've got one here. Michael writes, 
I am at my in-law's house for the holidays, and I brought my MacBook along. I enabled Back to My Mac at home so I can access my media drive at home so the kids can watch movies that are there. I have a pretty good internet connection at home, 30 megabits down and 4 megabits per second up. My in-laws have a DSL connection with 6 megabits down and something not so great up, maybe a half a megabit. So I fired up the MacBook and I connected it to my media drive at home with no problem over back to my Mac. A little delay, but not unusual. I found the movie file I wanted to play. It was 1.2 gigabyte file and I uh, right clicked it and opened it with QuickTime Player. Of course, it was not immediate, but after a minute or so, it started to play. The movie in the first few minutes started to play fine, but then it began to stutter and at some points more than others. For the most part, I would say it was watchable, but not as elegant, obviously, as if I had watched it at home or if I had downloaded the file to begin with. Which brings me to my question. What protocol or protocols are back to my Mac using when connected to another Mac over the Internet? Like I said, uh, I could have downloaded the file, which would have taken some time considering my four megabits up. Uh, Not slow, but not blazing fast for a file that size. What I was doing was opening the file with QuickTime, and I suppose I was streaming it, but was I? I can understand if I were copying the file, Back to My Mac would use TCP IP, but is Back to My Mac smart enough to know if I am streaming instead and to use UDP? And if not, is there a way to force it to? Also, if what I was doing was streaming, does the difference in me and my in-laws connection speed factor into the stuttering? Okay, so... Uh, interesting questions. It's important to kind of take a step back and think about how the technology all works back to my Mac is simply providing a tunnel back to your, in this case, your network, uh, similar to a VPN connection, but you know, in Apple's own little way, the shared drive, which you're connecting to your media drive, uh, is being connected over the AFP protocol, which is a TCP IP based protocol. And that's exactly the same way you would connect to it if you were at home. Um, In this case, the movie is simply being read like it were on a LAN-based AFP connection. Your QuickTime has no idea that you're using anything different, nor would it matter if you were using anything different. QuickTime just does what it does. Um, Movies can be built with streaming in mind which sets up the file to have things, all the right data in the right order so that you get stuff and you can start playing faster uh, or sooner. I should say Uh, your movie may or may not have this. The fact that you were able to start and pretty much play it through indicates that either your connection was fast enough or it was, it had some of these streaming hints and, and things embedded in it. Um, But you know, you with a 1.2 gigabyte movie, assuming it's 90 minutes long, which is 5,400 seconds, John, I think that means that it's going to need about uh, 1.8 megabits per second uh, to stream it uh, in real time. And both of your connections support that. So that's good. The thing is QuickTime player doesn't buffer anything. So if there's any interruption in the connection, the movie is going to stutter. It's not like, you know, if you've got, you need, let's say two megabits for the movie per second, uh, but your connection supports four. So in theory, it should be able to download the movie in 45 minutes. If it's a 90 minute movie, right. Or to a 1.2 gigabyte file. Uh, and that's faster than you would need to play it. But QuickTime's not smart enough because it, it's not expecting you to be streaming this thing. So it doesn't buffer the whole movie into Ram Uh, That would be inefficient for a file that was on your disk. It just plays it from the disk. It might buffer a second or two, but not very much. Um, There are other players that may 
buffer more. I know VLC player, I checked that. You can tweak the buffering, but the most you can get it to do is six seconds, which may be enough for this, but really not quite. The interesting thing, though, is that Safari does tend to buffer things in RAM when you're playing them because Safari is a web browser. So it's assuming that it's coming over the web. And I think it will treat files that you open locally. And that's how it's going to think you're going to do this. You're going to go to file open and navigate to the folder and open it and start playing from there. But I think Safari would actually um, buffer the thing at whatever speed it possibly could and just store it in RAM while you played it. Uh, So that, that, that would actually be the way I would do it if you didn't want to just copy the movie down. Uh, I, when I do this on vacation, I tend to copy the movie down. I actually use a shared folder in SugarSync that's shared between my iMac at home and my MacBook Air. So it's not going to all my other computers and wasting bandwidth, but it does upload the file and then download it. And then I've got it on the uh, on the air. So but I think I think Safari would work for this, John. What do you think? Something totally different. Good. Now, parts of what you said I agree with, but but another suggestion I have here, and it looks like Apple is phasing out this product, which is unfortunate, but I still found references to it and the underlying technology. Yep. So, there's something called QuickTime Streaming Server. Right? Yeah. Well, it gets even better. So it's actually an open source version of it called Darwin Streaming Server. And I, I played right. with this a few years ago. Uh, what I'm suggesting here is that there is a way to create a movie. Because I remember going through the process here is that if, and, and I think you hinted at this, if you specially prepare a movie file with the right information in it, then QuickTime can. Now, also, you have to be in a mode where you are linking to something where streaming is expected. And I think, as I mentioned here, it's some standard protocols, RTP and RTSP, um, are protocols that are specifically meant to efficiently stream content that's been prepared properly so you don't run into the problems like you were mentioning. Because basically what's happening is that you're hoping that the movie, that the bandwidth of the movie isn't greater than the bandwidth of your internet connection. Right, but I don't think QuickTime Streaming Server is going to solve his problem without him encoding the movie at multiple bit rates QuickTime Streaming Server is smart enough to look at the speed. It's still not going to let you buffer on your end by very much, but um, but because it's built to stream in real time. Uh, But it is smart enough to regularly look at the speed at which it's being it's able to send you data and Mm -hmm. and alter that speed. But only if it has. I don't think it's going to re-encode on the fly. So no. you've got to have, you need like four copies of every movie at all at different bit rates. And, and it would then adjust up or down. I, I think that would be, a, a, frankly, I think it'd be a headache to manage doing that way. Well, the price is right. And I'm suggesting it as an option. But Safari's free. I'm just, I mean, I'm just sure. saying, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think Safari would do it because he's got more speed than he needs. Just, you know, there's going to be those interruptions. That, that was. You know. Well, I just thought I tossed this in the ring and, yeah, yeah. and there may be, uh, I don't know if there are, I haven't looked at the space for a while. The last I did, again, this is open source. So there's, there's no harm in trying to install it and run it. Sure. And, and see what you get because it is specifically designed to stream content over a network that that's why these people develop these protocols. Right. Right. Um, there may be other products and I, I, I want to, explore we should explore this space more because it is a it is a we problem. need our cowbells 
That was good. Oh, right? always, everybody can always use more cowbell. That's right. All right. Okay. So that's that. That was my input on this. Cool. The, the, for the most part, I'm. I'm. Yeah, I'm with you. All right. Everybody needs more. The, the, the problem is bandwidth in, in this country sucks. Well, no, he's got plenty of bandwidth. It's just, you know, you're trying to stream something that requires an uninter effectively an uninterrupted stream. Right. And that's that's, you know, n- nothing does that. Your Apple TV doesn't do that. Right. I mean, if you're playing a movie, YouTube doesn't even do that. If you're playing a movie, it blasts it at you as fast as it can because it knows that there are going to be little stutters. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, anyway. Um, but yeah, it would be nice if QuickTime player had an option for doing this and you can, I mean, you can choose to open a stream, but that, you know, then you'd need a streaming server and, and all of that. But even that's not going to buffer it the way you want. It would be, it would be nice. Cause this is more, this is more common becoming more common than, uh, than it used to be. So I don't know what the, what the magic answer is though. I mean, Safari might do it. That might, that might be the answer. I don't know if there's a nice one. I mean, I remember something, something I did a number of years ago when I still had the PowerBook G4 mm-hmm. is I actually had to re-encode videos because that machine was particularly wimpy when it came right. to playing back video. Right. And that I take video files that played on one machine that was um, Intel. And then I put it on this machine and bring it to a friend's house and try to play back the same video file. Yeah. And I'm like, what happened? <laughs> It was oh, starting you know to what? stutter and drop out and everything. It was because uh, no, it was it was hitting the the limitations of the processor in the in the other machine. So, um, uh, Safari doesn't seem to work. At least not with the file menu. Hang on, we're going to do this live hmm. here. Um, I think if I now because I'm just trying this with we have a media drive here. It's you know very similar. Uh, so what if I I went to the file menu as I suggested and chose open locate? Oh no, I chose open. Oh no, yeah. I chose open file and it didn't work. It wouldn't even let me select movie files. It probably would only let me select like maybe an image and certainly an HTML file, but I'm taking the movie file from the finder and just dragging it onto Safari. And then the movie starts playing and it's blasting at me. Uh, Let's see. Is it blasting at full tilt across the network? It, is if I pause it, is it still blasting at me? Yes. So that is the answer. It, Safari will do this, but you have to drag it from the finder into a blank Safari window. And then you can hit the, you know, zoom to full screen option and that works fine. I'm assuming you can still hear me, John, despite the fact that I'm doing very foolish things mm-hmm. while we're podcasting. Okay, good. Uh, I think, is it still blasting at me? Let's make sure of this. Yeah, I think it is. I, I think this works. Yeah, it seems to be working. Can I jump around? Well, it's hard to say because it's on my local network. But uh, but I think that'll do it for you. Try it. Let us know. That would be good to know. All right, moving on to... And if you don't, if that doesn't work, really, please do let us know because then we'll investigate other options. Because um, I'll probably want to know this the next time I travel, too. Hopefully Safari does it though. Uh, Jeff writes, Jeff from California writes, I finally joined the iPad club. I'd waited for retina display. And when I saw the demo of iPhoto for editing photos with brushes, etc., on the iPad, I was sold. And Jeff has two questions here. He says, uh, here's my problem. My main iPhoto slash aperture library lives on the family iMac and is about 50 gigs with thousands of photos. 
I purchased the iPad with 64 gigs of storage with the idea that I could import edit groups of photos on the iPad and then relink these edited slash tweaked photos back to my iPhoto library on the Mac. The problem is that I can't seem to find a good way of getting these photos out of the iPad back into my iPhoto library to replace their old parts on the iMac. It's easy enough to grab, say, a whole year's worth of photos from the main iPhoto library. Perhaps I could use a third-party file management utility to sync the files directly into the iPhoto package in the appropriate folders, overwriting the originals. But this already sounds like a can of worms and not the simple, elegant workflow I was hoping for between these two versions of this same app. The problem I've run into thus far is that the edited photos from the iPad import as new photos when trying to use iPhoto to import them. Am I missing something obvious? Please advise. For archival photos, I'm supposing I might have to rebuild my albums with the new photos once this is done also. Perhaps the way iOS apps and OS X interact with each other will be improved in Mountain Lion. I'm certainly hoping the workflow between OS X and iOS is, for example. Uh, he then, question number two, we'll read both questions and we'll talk about them because they're both very related. He says, I've often wondered if a photo is edited and tweaked to my liking in iPhoto on the Mac, if there's any benefit to blasting away the original photo data in my iPhoto library. I realize the advantage of being able to return to the raw photo, but for a lot of archival images, I'm, I'm keeping two amounts, two times the data that I really need. I know Apple does not support any way in iPhoto of doing this, but is there a third party utility that does this, that you might be able to suggest? My main reasons for doing this is just streamlining the size and total file count of my iPhoto library. Or is it the case that the edited versions of photos are actually just collections of metadata, which simply refer back to the original photo on file? Okay, so uh, let's talk about this in reverse order here, John, and answer the second question first. Your edits are, in fact, new files with with iPhoto. I think that's um, that's important to state. So you can go and get rid of the originals. There used to be a, a utility called iPhoto Diet that did exactly this, uh, but uh, but it has not been updated and doesn't work with current versions of iPhoto. I did find a blog post that discusses a way of doing it uh, via the terminal uh, using a shell script, and uh, and that may that may work for you. Uh, the other thing you could do is run a referenced iPhoto library similar to iTunes. You can choose to store the images in your library versus out of them out of the library and you can do the same with with iphoto that you can do with itunes in that regard but um I, you know th there's no magic answer that i've heard of that works on current versions of iphoto to go and kill all these original photos do you know anything about it john i'm trying to look this up because i thought maybe i'm thinking more of aperture but i didn't think that changes were entirely new photos I'm pre they 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 have always been and I've gone through and manually found some of these in there. I haven't removed them, but uh, but it it's I don't believe it's just metadata. I think it's saving a new JPEG. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I wonder if they're different because a lot of times when I when I revert because you can go back. So, so at least in Aperture. Right. If you make changes that they're incremental and you can back out of them incrementally and i get the feeling that it's applying the changes and not actually creating a new master i'll have to research this more okay um there, there is a utility called iphoto duplicate annihilator and we'll put a link in the in the show notes to that uh, that that goes and kills duplicates it doesn't I, I played with it a little bit actually 
quite a bit this afternoon. It doesn't appear to have an option to go through and blast the originals away, but, um, but you know, maybe that thread, um, that we'll post does removing the, the redundant originals. So now we go back to question number one, which I'm going to present as more of a geek challenge. Uh, what you want to do, Jeff makes perfect sense. It would be awesome to edit photos on the iPad and then have those edits magically link to their counterparts on the, on the Mac and vice versa, frankly. But, uh, but that that methodology does not exist right now, to my knowledge. John, have you do you know differently, or or are are we in sync on this one? Mm. Pardon? Hello? You dropped out. Yeah, you dropped out. Oh, okay. What was uh, so the as I was saying, his first question: Is there a way to do that, or no? Hold on. Okay. His his first question. <laughs> Uh, his first question being, you know, editing the, the photos on the Mac and then ha- or on the iPad and then having them sync back to the Mac. I don't know of any way of doing that. All right. The, I, I haven't used iPhoto on the iDevice. So. Mm. Okay. Yeah, no, there, there isn't. It would be a great thing if there were. Um, obviously, you can, you can do what you're talking about, Jeff, and, and kind of feed those in. But this is one of those things where Apple has a great opportunity to enhance uh, the, the two products and, and make them work more in sync. And, and maybe you're right. Maybe iCloud is, is oh, the way to do that. Okay. So. Because I mean, right now, so I, I will use some image editing applications and if anything, what they do, a lot of them will have a choice, but I can, I think I can see where this problem is, um, is that they'll create a new photo in the photo roll. That's what, and yeah, it essentially yeah. comes up as a duplicate. And this is a choice in a lot of applications so I think everything that happens, at least what I see, yeah, it's in the photo roll. So if anything, you get duplicates in the photo roll. And the best I've done is I create a separate project in Aperture called iPhoto <laughs> and just ignore the ones that are duplicates. So, so I agree this is a problem because at least the, the, the basic editing that I've done on the iPhone mirrors yeah. what he's seeing is yeah. that it, it's not very smart about preserving the changes between the platforms right now. All right. Do you want to move on to Mark here, John? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it's a geek challenge at best, uh, but certainly a good thing to to kind of be aware of. And, you know, we'll go from there with it. All right, here we go. Mark. From Mark. Mark writes or types. I have a question about launch daemons. Daemons. Not demons. Daemons. Yeah, you can say it either way. Works either way. Don't fight. Yeah, they, they are both correct. And that's all I'm going to say. Launch statements, launch agents, and P-list thoughts. My question is, oh, wait, my question is, what is, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> Tongue twister for you? <laughs> well, it, the, the grammar is not entirely correct here. My question is, what, if you may have some web linkage to more information about the, oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, I mangled that. I, I should have I should preferred that. From what I gather, the user who uses launch control to load the P-list file must, must also own it, but that's why my knowledge ends. I should probably read the man page on P-list files. Yeah, uh, uh, not so much. Now, P-list files are just big old text files or maybe binary, but um, it, it's more, yeah, launch control, I would say, is what he, he should read up on. Um, I've also noticed there are user-level launch agents under uh, home directory library launch agents, home directory library launch statements, as well as system-level launch agents uh, just in the library folder. Just an general overview of what agent and daemon is would be good. And I think that's what he's asking is what's the difference between a launch agent and a launch daemon or daemon? 
Demon. Demon. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, you know, I didn't know initially. So here was my approach to try to figure this out, Dave. Go. My first approach. So if you want to look at these, well, there are two ways to look at these. So one is the hard way. One's the easy way. The hard way is you open up the plist file on your favorite either text editor or plist file editor. Okay. okay. And that's the hard part because there's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of keys. You don't know what the heck that all means. So to make your life a lot easier, you should open them with Lingon. Because what Lingon does is it now sees this, this is This is launch demons or launch agents? Uh, but yeah. Okay, both. It displays both. Okay. Now here's the fun part. Is that it displays them using which is pretty much a standard template that describes what's in the plist file. So the first thing I did, and then I wimped out, or no, I, I, I did the Google. So I looked, and I, I took Lingon, and I looked at files in both, the, the plist files, and it displayed them, again, with, uh, you know, the, the arguments organized in a nice fashion. And I looked, and I'm like, you know what? I can't tell what the difference is. So I got lazy, and I <laughs> did the Google foo, and I came up with an answer. And, you know, it kind of makes sense. So... Uh, it's a short article. I will link to it, but I, I digest it and I'm going to parse what the person said. But once you hear this, it makes sense. The, the difference here. And as far as I can tell, he's accurate. So launch daemons. Here's the difference. So number one, launch daemons. And I think he was suggesting this. Do not need to be attached to a user or a user does not have to be logged in. And they also, from what I can tell, in general, do not have a GUI. They just uh, run in the background. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Whereas launch agents have to be associated with a user or have to be launched by a user. I think that's where they get put under and they can use the GUI. And as I started looking at the files in my launch daemons and launch agents, pretty much everything I looked at pretty much conformed to these two rules here. Uh, so, the, so, so the thing is... There are so subtle it, differences, but it makes sense to separate them because, again, one is more system control, one is user control, and, and the ability for them, uh, how they communicate what's happening with the outside world, whether it's through terminal or pipes or processes or, or through, through a GUI. And, uh, and a agents don't have to have a GUI. And by GUI... No, they don't have to, but, we, they, but, but, but this is, it's, it's a specific thing that daemons cannot do. Mm. Well, seeing them, they're, they're typically that, things launched on the terminal and they end in a D for the most part, though they don't have to, but they usually yep. do. Okay, cool. So, but, so but, I, but I, I in terms of their, their structure, at least in terms of the way they're like the P list is built and the way they're launched, they're very, very similar. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. Okay. Well, the template that you see when you look at them through Lingon, and that's what made it very clear to me. And that's why I'm suggesting people check this out. Yeah. When, when you look at them, You'll see the same template with a number of options. Makes perfect sense. Cool. Very cool. All right. So, and then be very careful if you touch anything there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's bad news. They're really not meant, meant to be, uh, uh, yeah, uh, fiddled with by mere mortals. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. Not good. All right. Uh, let's see. We have Douglas up next, but actually I want to talk about BB edit first, which is from bare bones, which is our sponsor first sponsor anyway, for this show. BB edit is it's a text editor. Really? I, I, I feel okay saying that it's really a text editor for everyone. 
Uh, it's very straightforward to use. You can launch it and start typing and save the file. Uh, you can take it to the next level if you're editing or writing a file, creating a file uh, that will be built in a language. And by this language, I mean by language, I mean anything from, you know, C++ all the way to HTML or JavaScript or PHP or I mean, really, I think it's got every language I've ever heard of and some that I haven't built into it. And it's automatically going to figure out what language you're you're writing in based on a number of factors, including how you name the file. In fact, that I think is the main factor. But uh, but if you're just saving a text file, you can edit in there. I use it all the time uh, for a lot of different things. One of the things I use it for is for counting the number of lines in a text file. You can count the number of characters. Uh, you can also sort the text in a file very, very easily. It only edits text. So all this rich text stuff that sometimes gets in the way when you're copying and pasting around with uh, text edit is, does, is non-existent in BB edit. So you can paste something in and all you're going to get is the text. The formatting that you see in BB edit is actually created only by BB edit. And it's based on its auto sensing of the language that you're in, but it's not mucking with the file. The formatting is all just plain text when you save these files and export and, and not export when you just save them and use them in, in anything. It's also really cool. If you've got files, you know, for those of you that uh, the, the refugees from uh, iWeb, if you were hosting on mobile me and now you're hosting somewhere where you're FTPing files back and forth, well, BB edit can talk directly to those files on an FTP server. If you're at like dream host or something, you can open the file using BB edits built in FTP browser and then the file is just open, just like it was on your disk. And you can edit right there in BB Edit. And when you hit save, instead of saving it to your disk, which it can also do as a backup, uh, it saves it across the Internet to the FTP server and live right there. You can edit, refresh in your web browser, see the change, tweak it again, see the change. And uh, it really it, it I don't I couldn't run my day without BB Edit. I use it at least once a day. Uh, every day, if not more often. And uh, and you can go check it out. Go to barebones.com. You can download a free trial, of course. Uh, and then if you uh, if you like it, you can buy it from uh, right from from barebones.com. If you like, it's forty nine bucks, which is awesome because it used to be, you know, more than one hundred dollars more than that. Uh, but now it's forty nine bucks, it's, which is outstanding. You can also buy it from the Mac App Store. If you buy it from the Mac App Store. You don't immediately get the benefit of the terminal commands associated with BB edit. You can actually go to the terminal and once you've got things set up right, you can just type BB edit and a file name and it will allow you to use BB edit as though you're, you're right there in the terminal, which is cool. Uh, but you don't get that if you get it from the Mac app store, but you can, you can just go to their website and download the command line stuff and it'll interface with the version you've downloaded from the Mac app store. Uh, and the, and that stuff is free once you've got BB edit. So go ahead and check it out. Barebones.com or the Mac app store and, uh, and check it out. It's good stuff. And we really appreciate them being a sponsor and we appreciate you checking them out too. It's we, we, we love that we have uh, sponsors like Barebones who make software that we like to use because it really makes it easy to talk about this stuff. So I hear your air conditioner right. there, oh. John. Uh, which tells me that it's well. That's because my my brain is burning because I found some information here. I just mm. well, tell had me. to get off. 
Well, here, so I found a reference here. So, so my instincts were correct. They, they often are, but sometimes not. <laughs> so I found an aperture page here, and they talk about individual entities that the, the uh, environment maintains. Yeah. So there are certainly masters, but then they have something called versions. And specifically, I won't read the whole paragraph. We will link to it, or I'll link to it. Um, but specifically, a version refers to the master on your hard disk, but it is not a master in itself. So versions store only the thumbnail image adjustments and embedded information. A full image file is not created. Huh. Saving valuable storage space on your hard disk. Really? So that so doesn't exist anymore. The, what do you mean? Well, the, 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 the original files don't exist anymore. I mean, the, the duplicates of them don't exist anymore. What I'm saying is that Aperture's strategy is to store the changes that you've made to an image and not a duplicate. Oh, what about iPhoto? Like iPhoto? Well, as far as I can tell, it sounds like based on what you said that iPhoto does. I mean, yeah. I've stitched iPhoto, okay. but it sounds like iPhoto is, is kind of dumb about that. Yeah, but don't, don't Aperture and iPhoto use the same library structure now? Maybe iPhoto's changed the way it does. Yeah, this. that's what I'm wondering. But... but Aperture, what I'm reading here, absolutely maintains these things called versions of a photo. So, so maybe that uh, that's a change to I'm going to have to dig more. I'm curious about this. Or And any of our, uh, I know several of you out there are either Aperture or Lightroom fans. Yeah. Or snob. Uh, <laughs> or, or iPhoto people. Yeah. I, I see a lot of battles between Aperture and Lightroom. Oh, uh, yeah. On the, on the Twitters. Um, a lot of people don't like that Aperture hasn't really been updated for a while. And I think Lightroom kind of... And it was ahead of them. And they're both. Yeah. So if anybody knows the detail, but, but again, reading the page here and, and based on some poking around, I did in the iPhoto uh, or Aperture library file. I, I didn't see all these duplicates flying around. So, yeah. And I'll have to see if iPhoto's changed how they do it. That, that'd mm. be great if they did. Because as they advertise here, it, it does save space. I mean, it's right. It's easy to save, a, you know, another big image file, but it's wasteful. Yes. Yeah. All agreed. right. Great. I hope I iPhoto changed because then it then it makes you know that part of that question uh, not necessary. That's great. Mm -hmm. All right, Douglas writes in episode four hundred four. You talked about backing up and encryption. You mentioned you mentioned what backups are encrypted and which aren't. However, you never really discuss how to encrypt your backup. It seems pointless to have an encrypted drive on my computer and then an unencrypted clone of that drive on an external drive. I use both Time Machine and Carbon Copy Cloner for my backups. I know that you can enable Time Machine encryption in the Time Machine preference pane. You mentioned, though, that Carbon Copy Cloner clones are not encrypted. And that leads to my question. How do I encrypt my backup clone? And if I do encrypt it, will I be able to boot from it? I have a two terabyte external drive with a partition for each of the Macs I clone. Do I have to boot from each clone, enable File Vault 2, and wait for encryption to complete on each drive to get a bootable encrypted clone? And if so, what will happen when I update the clone? Will this even work or is there a better way? So, uh, Douglas, you're you're right. The, the backups by default. Uh, and when I say by default, if you haven't gone through the process of creating these as encrypted or converting these to encrypted, they will not be. So unless you know that your backups are encrypted or your clones are encrypted, they aren't. Uh so here's the interesting thing. Your uh, suggestion of of going through and booting from each clone and enabling File Vault 2 will do it. Uh, that will encrypt that that drive. And then that drive will stay encrypted 
uh, when you update the clone. So yes, that will work. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad way to do it, but, uh, but there are other ways. Uh, as you said, time machine will encrypt the disk image of your backups. If you choose encrypt backup disk in that select disk dialogue of time machine, but time machine, as you point out, is not bootable. The GUI version of file vault, the, the one in system preferences will only encrypt the main boot disk, uh, as you noted, but it is possible to encrypt any drive that is connected to your Mac. Uh, you can do it with disk utility, the, the normal one that lives in your applications utilities folder, but that requires you to wipe the drive clean and start from scratch with your data. Uh, and when you, when you create the drive, you, when you create the partitions and you format it, you know, instead of using Mac OS 10 uh, extended, you do Mac OS 10 extended encrypted, and then it'll ask you for passwords. And when you mount the drive, you can store the password in your keychain. And we'll talk about some of the security stuff uh, at the end, but, but functionally that you can do, but it does require wiping the drive. However, uh, if you want to convert an existing disc to an encrypted disc, uh, there's a very simple command line procedure and, and Macworld detailed it. So we'll, we'll link to it, but I mean, it's, it's really, really straightforward. You got to figure out what partition uh, your, your, your disc is on. And they talk about this in here. And then, and then you just run a, uh, a simple little command and I'm trying to find it in the article. It's so small. It's, uh, Oh, where is it? Oh, it's on page two of this article, which I thought I had the link to, but I guess not. Okay. Uh, it says, where is it? Disk util space CS space convert space disc four or whatever disc it is. Uh, and then you put a passphrase in, and you type dash passphrase and then you put your password or you could do it in a, a couple of different ways, but it is literally one line. And then it'll give you this sort of, you know, archaic, uh, 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 progress bar at, in the terminal there while it goes through and encrypts the whole drive. Remember when a drive is encrypted, it's not just the data on the drive that's encrypted. The free space is encrypted too. So it does have to go through everything, no matter, uh, how much, um, data you actually have stored on the drive. So, but that's totally uh, it totally works. And then when you clone to it, it stays encrypted. And, and, and the thing is, you know, I said, you can store your password in the keychain. If you want your backups to happen automatically, you need to store your, your password in the keychain. Otherwise things like carbon copy cloner or super duper cannot mount that drive. But of course, storing your password in the keychain does create a, uh, a potential security hole. And you have to sort of decide what, you know, where, as with all security convenience, Versus security. It is a constant battle and it will always sort of be the yin and yang of one another, but, uh, but it is doable. So, so there you go. Mr. Braun comments. I'm sure. Not really. I, hmm. I think you, 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 you got it, but um, uh, I don't think security has to be hard. I'm, I'm really rooting for biometrics. Yeah. But then, but then all I have to do is cut your eyeball out. And, well, uh, and I can you, access oh, you your gotta, data. Uh, you've been watching too many movies. You, 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 you got to check the temperature too, right? Yeah, but I just microwave your eyeball every time I want to log into your machine, right? No, it kind of freaked me out though, and I don't know if I'm, <laughs> I want to do this. No, one of the vending machines at, at the at the new gig here has yeah. a thumbprint reader. Oh, you don't want your thumbprint on file anywhere, man. Well, it's, a, it's not really the thumbprint, you know, it's a, it's a pattern, you yeah. know, the, 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 the 
abstract representation right. of what's where. But right, right. Yeah, it's not the. But it was kind of funny, and it had like a, the news on the screen, and like a system where you know if you uh, you could you could play games and stuff. And I was like, wow, this this vending machine, you know, I just want a beverage. It was way too engaging. <laughs> Plus, it was like you know, scan your thumb, and then the next time you come, you could just scan your thumb and then get stuff. But if you build an account that's protected by, it was kind of wacky. I gotta get the brand. I want to get one at home. <laughs> For my guests. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Where uh, are we here? Uh, let's. Uh, why don't you you, uh, you 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 help Jim on Twitter? Why don't you uh, share that one quickly, and then we'll and then we'll jump to uh, David, which talks about uh, carbon copy cloner again. Yeah. So this. Um, so Jim had a question. I had an answer. Um, his question was. So apparently, I think he's uh, he has to sometimes use a VPN and sometimes not. And uh, apparently, uh, some of his mail accounts do not work properly, depending on the configuration that he's using. So the question was, how can I disable certain mail accounts? Mm. And I'll tell you how. <laughs> well, it's a little Apple script. So, so I did, did a little surf and found something. Um, uh, and it's called Enable Disable Accounts. And it's at uh, automatedworkflows.com, product software, freeware. We will link to their product page, of course. But he came back and said the toggle function is what I needed to deal with block services at work and VPN at home. Thanks. Awesome. So, glad that one worked out. Apple Script is, is just a bee's knees. It I think really what they're doing is. is essentially, I think what they're really doing, I don't think the, the mail app interface is sophisticated enough to let you do this. Or I, I couldn't find, I thought there was maybe a secret handshake to get this to happen, like holding down a key when the thing launches, but no. So uh, apparently I think what it's doing is just digging in a P list file and just, you know, setting the account to off. <laughs> and then you launch mail and everything is uh, as you would expect. Oh so. yeah. That, that totally makes sense. I mean, you've seen it before. I mean, the thing is, mail, if it has problems, it'll disable certain accounts. But it's more, re- the, the way it is now, it's more a reaction to something bad happening. Then, and then, you know, then you say, you know, you click on the, the icon that shows things are broken, and it says bring accounts back online. So, so the capability is definitely there, but they don't expose it to you unless something terrible happens. So, good stuff. Yeah, that's good. Com. Cool. And you got uh, you want to talk about David now to uh, wrap up our our backup carbon copy cloner ish discussion. Yeah, you know I, I gotta admit this is is not something that I had done. <laughs> okay, so it was a, so it was a good refresher. Let, let me let me get this up here. Well, I'll, I'll play the uh, I'll play. The oh wait, oh I'm sorry, I was looking for the 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 text. And there the, is, there is no there text because, because it's audio. Hey, Dave and John. This is uh, David. I'm calling. Uh, I have a couple questions for you. I love your show. Anyway, I recently upgraded to an awesome SSD from a spinning 5400 RPM tortoise of a drive. I love the difference. Unfortunately, along the way, I failed to bring over my Lion recovery image with my clone using Carbon Copy, Carbon Copy Cloner. This is not a complaint of the software. I love CCC. It truly saves my bacon every time I use it. In CCC, I chose to archive the files thinking it would bring my image over onto the SSD, but it did not get cloned as I thought it would. I consider this my user error. And my question is, what could I have done differently to have avoided my error in the first place? And I'm asking for future reference and also to save any other listeners out there the aggravation of trying to fix this should they try and clone their Lion HD. I found myself stuck with the decision to reinstall Lion in order to regain the built-in recovery image or live without it. Since I want 
the feature of Find My Mac, I opted to recreate the recovery image locally to my drive. However, I chose to do it the hard way. I did not want to reinstall Lion, so I physically added a one gig partition to my new drive. Luckily, I previously had created a USB flash drive backup of my original recovery partition. Hmm. I had used Apple's Lion Recovery Disk Assistant to help create the backup, and that's a different story anyway. Luckily, I had it around, so I used Disk Utility and restored the USB version of the Lion Recovery Disk onto the newly created one gig partition on my new drive. Well, it worked. Unfortunately, the new recovery partition was no longer hidden from view and automatically mounted on startup, just like any visible partition would. So I searched and searched and found that a partition could be hidden in OSX, but only in that the drive would not mount on startup. It's still visible in disk utility, uh, unlike the original recovery disk, which is totally hidden. But at least it does not mount on startup anymore, so it seems hidden, which is what I wanted. Furthermore, I tested it, and um, everything turned out great. Uh, it, it does all of its functions and even still has Find My Mac. Um, everything is going good. So I know it's a convoluted approach to the mess that I made for myself, but, um, and I know in the time that I did all this stuff, I could have just reinstalled Lion, but <laughs> it was really fun and I learned a lot. And so here's my last question. Is there an easier way to restore a missing built-in recovery disk partition than doing all the steps I did to arrive at my Frankenstein recovery disk? All right, gentlemen, thanks. I love the show. Keep up the good work, and you can cut me off here. All right, cut you off we shall, David. And uh, John, take it away. I'm taking it away. You know, I hadn't actually gone through this process, so I think I admit that we both said, oh, yeah, you know, Carbon Copy Cloner says it does the line recovery thing. Well, it should do it. I found out what what it does not do. So apparently, reading over the documentation here, uh, I have a spare hard drive. I don't believe it does this automatically, but it has tools built in. So I poked around the documentation. I found two things. So one, when you set up the preferences for Carbon Copy Cloner, there is a preference that you can check saying automatically create an archive of Lion's recovery HD volume. Right. That will create a disk image of the recovery partition on the destination volume. As far as I can tell, it doesn't necessarily copy the recovery partition. I think to do that, they have a, a part of the program that I've never used before, but it's called Disk Center. Right. Yeah, this is a cool I, part of Carbon Copy Cloner. But I had never been there, and what they say about this is that this... Uh, so they also talk about the archive in... in uh, so they have a section in the docs called Cloning Lions Recovery HD Partition. So they also mention the, this uh, option that I talked about that'll create a disk image, but then it says... This archive can later be restored to another recovery hard HD volume, and CCC's Disk Center also offers the ability to create a new recovery HD volume on another disk. So, again, I'll admit it, I hadn't actually gone through it, but it looks like you have to go into a you know specific part of the program in order to get this to happen. It does not appear that it happens automatically. Ah. Yeah. So he could so he could have done it more simply. And and by more simply, I mean that he could have pressed a button in Carbon Copy Cloner and it probably would have gone through all of the steps that he discussed going through to make this happen. I think that's what this disk, disk center portion of yeah. the program does. Ah, very cool. I got to start playing with, you know, I was, I've been a super duper guy for a long time, but, uh, but you know, I want to learn more about lots of stuff. And Carbon Copy Cloner is one of those things. So I got to check this out. This disk center, especially, especially. It's very interesting. Yeah, because last thing I did, I think I kind of did the Frankenstein thing as well, is that uh, 
when I put the momentous in here, the hybrid uh, SSD. Yep. I think I did a fresh line install and then I did <laughs> a carbon copy clone or copy from my old drive. Oh. So that, uh, the, yeah, so that's what took care of creating the recovery partition is I was doing a fresh line install. Right. <laughs> Right, yeah, that'll and do. Just right, copying over, and then just copying over the data portion. It sounds similar to what he did. Yeah, which was a convoluted way of doing it. So, yeah. cool, makes sense. Awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Nice, nice find there, Mister Braun. All right, uh, John, not you, but uh, listener John writes. I'm having trouble with my iTunes library. I store my library on an external FireWire 800 drive because my mid 2009 IMAX 250 gig is nowhere near enough space. I also have a USB drive that Carbon Copy Cloner clones to every night. In the iTunes settings, it shows the correct path for my library. However, if I peek at any media files get info window within iTunes, it shows the path to my USB clone. I only noticed this because I was watching a movie earlier and noticed the USB drive blinking away more than normal. So how do I get iTunes to actually use the correct drive? Okay, so the first question is to ask, how did this happen? Um, presumably at some point iTunes was pointing to your, your correct drive for all of its files. And then somehow it maybe lost that drive at one point and iTunes does something and I'm, I'm speculating here, but, I, but iTunes does something interesting when you go to play a file and iTunes can't find that file in the location that it knows that file to have lived. It pops up a message and essentially it doesn't use these words, but essentially says, hey, this file's been orphaned. You know, I don't know where it is. Can you help me find it? And then it gives you a little dialogue. And when you go and find it, um, it says, do you want me to use this location for other files that are lost in your library? And if you say yes, it goes through your whole library and remaps uh, everything to this new location, which is really, really handy uh, in a lot of situations. But if that is what happened to you here, John, that's what kind of directed everything to the wrong place. I can only assume that that's what happened, but uh, it sounds reasonable. What I do know, though, is we can use that mechanism to perhaps get things pointed back. Could also use the consolidate library mechanism in iTunes, but I worry about creating duplicate files and 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 perhaps taking a very, very long time to do this. So the first thing I do is try this way, which would be get rid of the USB drive temporarily, shut it, you know, uh, properly eject it and shut it down, disconnect it from your Mac so that there is no way that your Mac can access files on that drive. Then launch iTunes and try to play one of these files that, you know, it's pointing to on that drive. It will most likely come up and say, hey, I can't find this, at which point you will point it to that files doppelganger over on the main drive that you want. And then hopefully and you may have to do this a couple of times with a couple different files, but eventually it will ask you, do you want me to repoint this? And it will start, you know, remapping things internally to it. And hopefully that will deal with your problem. Um, I find it. With all clones, be they clones of my iTunes library or clones of my hard drives, I find it very valuable to make the clones, of course, but then to unmount them. And I know Super Duper will allow me to do this at the end of every ba- every clone backup that it does. Does Carbon Copy Cloner let you do that too, or do you have to live with your clone mounted all the time, John? Hmm? Huh? Does Carbon... Co- How you doing? Good. Good. 
Good. You know, I was we're reading doing... over part of his question. And then ah, you, okay. Uh... So does carbon copy cloner um, allow you to eject a drive automatically at the end of a clone? No, maybe not. Okay. So no, any... I think no, I've, I've looked in the schedule window and I believe they're, they're pre and post uh, schedule events. And I think that's one of them. Okay. No, good. Yeah, we answered that before. Okay. So, so uh, it's super duper certainly does. And it's really handy to not have your clones mounted all the time because strange things can happen when you have, you know, the same data in two places. In fact, when, before I started it doing this, I, I started having problems where occasionally my Mac would boot from its clone because it would get the feeling that that's where it should boot from. And that's, that's of course bad. Your AC is loud. Um, anyway, the, uh, I got to find your noise gate. There it is. Uh, so, so that, you know, unmount the clone, and, and then do this. But I would say keep the clone unmounted unless you are in the process of doing that cloning. And and that should keep this from happening again. If the if the disconnect and kind of let iTunes force itself to remap doesn't work, you can use the file organize library consolidate library function, uh, which should bring everything back to where you have pointed it for your main uh, library and in, in iTunes preferences. But again, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what that's going to do. If it's going to actually try to copy everything from your USB drive back, or if it's going to notice that, Hey, wait a minute, these files are here. I don't need to copy them. And it, it might go through very quickly. Uh, so hopefully method number one will work. So you don't have to even have to try method number two. Okay. And specifically there is. So in the uh, backup task scheduler, there is a before and after setting. Yep. And after copying files, there is an option for destination volume. And one of the options is unmount. So I can awesome. see it in a tiny little screen. Yeah, unmount the destination volume. So, yeah, I, I think people pointed out that that was only super duper before. But then, uh, yeah, these guys catch up to each other. So Yeah, they do. You yeah, can certainly yeah. do that. The, the other thing, well, I think it was mentioned, but a basic thing is when you, when you start up iTunes, you hold down option, I think, and it asks for the library. But yeah. it sounds like maybe you have to keep at it sometimes. Maybe it doesn't take hold. I no, 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 no. His library, is it, the library file that he's using is fine. It's just that it's yeah. pointing, it's looking in at the wrong location yeah. for his files. Yeah. Uh, but, the, you know, the, uh, the library file itself is, uh, is you know, he's, he's reading the right one. He's getting all the playlist he wants and, and all that stuff. So, so yeah, hmm. just a, a word of advice to everyone is don't leave your clones mounted. Uh, if you don't need them right then and there, because it, it, it can get hairy. So. And it, it can actually cause problems for Spotlight. And speaking of Spotlight, Jeremy writes. Uh, he says, my current irritation with Lion is that every time I restart and I haven't had to do it so many restarts since the ghastly days of a performer back in the 1980s. Uh, my system starts to re-index Spotlight, thus rendering the machine completely useless because of disk activity for around half an hour. There's quite a lot of frustrated posts about this in Apple's forums, but no real solution as far as I can tell. So, any ideas? And, uh, yeah, I, it sounds to me like, well, the first thing to try is if Spotlight's index is constantly re-indexing, that would indicate to me that maybe the index is damaged and it it can't store something in there that tells it, hey, I'm cool. You don't have to rebuild me every time. So with that, I would erase Spotlight's index and and let it rebuild it one more time, hopefully uh, from scratch. You can do that with Onyx 
And that's probably the safest way to do it, uh, especially if you're not comfortable with the terminal. And Onyx is free, so there's no reason not to do that. Uh, but if you want to do it from the terminal, it is a very, very short command. It's mdutil, all one word, space, dash, capital E, space, slash. And that will erase, hence the, cash, uh, the, the, the capital E, that will erase the spotlight index on the slash, which is your boot drive. Uh, if you have other drives attached, also a good idea to erase the spotlight index on those. And those would be, you know, mdutil dash capital E slash volumes slash name of drive. Uh, and if there's spaces in there, use the tab key to let terminal complete that or just use Onyx to make your life simpler. But uh, but that that should do it. And uh, hopefully that's that's all the problem is. If if that's not it, I'm not sure what to uh what to think of there, John? You got any thoughts? There's a different way, which I think essentially it accomplishes the same thing, but you can take uh, pretty much any volume. And inside the spotlight, I think it's the, is it the privacy tab? You can drag a device in there and then take it out again. And uh, that, that should initiate what you talked about. So if, if, if you're afraid of the, the terminal, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's the privacy tab. That's right. Yeah, that's that's been a weird thing for me. I've tried that. Um, and I, yeah, yeah, I guess it works. It, you're right. It tells the drive. I don't know that it erases the index. It tells the drive not to index. But does it actually erase it or, or does it just turn it? Well, off no, I think well, what I'm saying is if you put something there like a device in the privacy yeah. section of spotlight and then you remove it, that is as far as I know, doing the same thing as the MDUtil space dash capital E. Okay, so it is erasing it as opposed to just um, just turning it off and then turning it back on. That's what I heard through the grapevine. All right, well, you know, Marvin Gaye said so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, uh, that spotlight. Uh, you, uh, we can we can answer more questions. We can talk about uh, uh, dying hard drives if we want. Let's go to the, let's go to cool stuff found. We've got some good stuff there. Do you have uh do you have anything you want to add to cool stuff found here, John, or, or are we just going with Not the agenda? Yet. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, all right. You want to, uh, you want to read one of these, John? Sure. I'll take mics and then we can, uh, we can okay. uh, maybe go back and forth from there. Okay. So Mike Please. says, hi guys. I listen to the show every week via the stitcher app and I always enjoy it and learn something new. I'd like to pass on something I wasn't aware of and found by accident. I listen to a lot of music on my iPhone 4S with my headset, and I've always known that if you push the play pause button twice, it skips to the next song. What I didn't realize is that if you quish, quick, quickly, quickly, which is short for quickly push, quickly push that button three times, it takes you back to the beginning of the song you're listening to. And if you hit three times a second time, it takes you back to the last song you listen to. Am I the only one who didn't know this? Please keep doing what you're doing. Absolutely, Mike. We will always, well, certainly for a long period of time, keep doing what we're doing here. John, did you uh, did you know about that? Do you do you monkey with those things? I don't really monkey around that much. No, well, you know, monkeys can be good. Well, I do like monkeys. Yeah, haven't you always wanted a monkey, John? Uh, no. All right. 
Do you want to you want to talk about Chris's? No, cool stuff I'll found? tell you why. No, I said, I'll have to get the name of the movie. But no, I saw a movie. Um, it was a documentary about a, a group of people that basically adopted a young monkey, and the thing is, they they eventually get out of control, and that they eventually don't know their own strength, and they don't make very nice no, companions. I've, I've heard that after they get pets. after they. After they get, uh, or at least uh, your basic chimpanzee, basic model chimpanzee, after about four or five years, I think they get so strong and and all of that. But anyways, Chris, yeah. So I got a tip from Chris here. So I do want a monkey, but I don't. <laughs> so the, uh, so here, so Chris writes us, and uh, I'll, I'll, I won't read the rest of the stuff. But, you know, I didn't know this, and this is probably buried in some help files somewhere. But anyways, he says, speaking of cool stuff found, here's one I heard about the other day. I would hope verified. Hold down the option key. And I think this is only on MacBooks. Or no, maybe it's on other machines. But I tried it on my MacBook because I don't have these keys marked. The tip is hold down the option key while keying one of the function keys like brightness. It immediately opens up the system preference window for that adjustment. It works on the iMac too. I'm doing it right now. I have an Apple keyboard with uh, brightness and uh, expose and sound. And it works for all of them. Up oh, and I just did it here. Yeah, I did it on my. Uh, yeah, so I have the same keyboard. So yeah, I did it for sound, and it brings up the sound panel right there. Look at that! It's awesome. I love that. That's great. I so, got it. I got so the option. So you should. Uh, I think the guidance here is you always want to be holding down the option key to just see if it makes interesting new things happen. That's actually. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, with with the your with, with your qualifier, I agree with that. But always holding down the option key—that's not such a good idea. But but when you're hunting for Certainly. cool things, the option key can be cool. Yeah, absolutely. All right, all right. Let's see. Uh, L.A. dude writes. Uh, I know you guys like secrets, but there are a couple of other apps that uh, that you might like as well. There's Tinker Tool and Tinker Tool System, and uh, and these are cool apps. I think we've talked about them before, but it's been a long time since we've talked about them, and and we'll post these to uh, to the show notes, of course. But these allow a lot of different tweaks and settings, uh, both kind of doing different things. The the Tinker Tool, the main one, seems to do mostly like little like Finder tweaks and and that sort of thing, and then Tinker Tool System. Does all kinds of uh, repairs and that sort of thing, similar to uh, to Onyx, but but doing some of the same stuff, some some different stuff. Um, so there you go. And then from go ahead. From what I recall, for a question that we had a while ago that had to deal with ACLs, yes, or access control lists, which are a way to customize file access in Unix operating systems, including Mac OS ten. But it's very hard if somebody sets one of these to see the setting. Yeah. But from what I recall, I think it was Tinker Tool System 2, maybe. But I found a program, and it sticks in my mind that this was one of the programs that actually had the ability to, I think, let you both view them and, and manipulate ACLs. You are absolutely right. In the feature Whoa. list, it says, and I mean, this is buried in the feature list. This is like an OS 10, you know, major update feature list where they say, we've got 400 new features, and then they actually list them all. Uh, it says display <laughs> display and change the true permission setting of file objects, getting full control over access control lists. So, yeah, that's that's right. 
I don't know where these nuggets are buried, but the, the, sometimes they come out. That's why we do this show. It really, it is why we do. Part of the reason we do this show is to to help bury some of these nuggets, not only in our brains, but but in yours. And uh, and you know, we don't even remember all the little tips we talk about in every show. Uh, at least not in a in a conscious way. But when something comes up, it's like, hey, wait, wait a minute. Like John just did here. I, you know, I remember this. This does something important. And and then it comes out. And that's that's the kind of thing that's really valuable when you're, you know, in the weeds troubleshooting. And you're like, hey, wait, I've heard about this before. And with today with Google, that's enough to know. Wait a minute. I, I know there's an answer, you know, and that that's part of why we do what we do here. So uh, so that's a good thing. Uh, he's well, also because it's like a Borg hive mind. Right. And if you want to watch about that, I, uh, my recommendation would be the episode Best of Both Worlds, a two part episode. That was uh, awesome. Star Trek, Star Trek. Next yeah. Generation, which I think was movie quality, but it had big Borg action, which I think we kind of are like. We're, we're like a big collective of, you know, brains. Uh, uh, sorry. But we use our <laughs> powers for good, John. Well, the, well, the Borg felt they were using their powers for good as well. Right. But we actually right? are. Yeah. Well, they said they just wanted, you know, to, to give everybody the benefits of being part of the Borg uh, collective. And then that's how they saw it. I don't, I don't think they thought they were doing evil or wrong. But they were so? very adamant about not allowing anyone to not be part of the collective. Whereas we're a kind of OK. If you don't want to be part of our collective, it's like, you know, OK, bye. You know, it's OK. All right. Well, that part's kind of evil. Yeah. 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 The part of, yeah, if you didn't want to join the club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exterminated you. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's not very friendly. Okay. That's bad. That's not the Mac Sorry. Geek Gab way. But uh, one other thing that LA Dude mentioned in sort of the same general vibe is Mac Pilot, which uh, does a lot of that stuff too. Mac Pilot is 20 bucks. It's got an awesome graphic interface for doing a lot of these things. It'll, and again, they all sort of do some of the same stuff, but some different stuff. One thing that Mac pilot does that I love is it will let you flush your DNS cache, which is really, really handy. If you're visiting websites and things are changing and you, you've got some wacky stuff, you can, instead of rebooting your Mac, you can just run that in Mac pilot and boom, away it goes. <gasps> Really? Yeah. Wasn't there just, wasn't there just something that just got activated today that, that, that had something to do with DNS redirection or corruption or something like that? Some virus or other nastiness? Yeah. It, well, the FBI, um, th there was this DNS changer virus that mm. would, would redirect people and, and pollute the DNS system. And so um, the FBI had actually contracted with a private firm to keep some servers up that would sort of mitigate this for most people. And most people wouldn't realize that, that they were infected and, and could still get where they needed to get. But yeah, today actually uh, the 9th of, of July, 2012 was the day that the FBI's deal with these people ended and, and therefore the servers came down or are coming down or something. So that's, uh, it seemed like there were no significant outages related to that though. So all all's well that ends relatively well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, I, st I stumbled on something last night, John. I didn't even realize. You did? Are you OK? Are you OK? <laughs> yeah, I'm all right. You know, stub toe is better than uh, than a lot of other things. But uh, but anyway, uh, this is even better than that. I was messing around on my iPad and I guess I held my, I was going to create a new tab and I guess I held my finger down too long. I was in Safari, obviously, because I was going to create a new browser tab. And as I held down on the plus sign. I got a list of five web pages 
and a label at the top that said recently closed tabs. And uh, and some of these were automatically closed because, you know, things open and it, it sort of expires old ones and some of the or tabs that I had closed manually. But uh, but there they were, the last five tabs, which is really handy if, you know, you get one of those that sort of expires and you're like, dang it, I need that back. It'll show you the last five recently closed tabs. I tried to find a way to do this on my iPhone 4S and could not. I uh, tried holding down just about everything and, and couldn't find it. So I don't know if there's a, uh, if there's a way to do it on that, but, uh, but it, there certainly is on the iPad. So who knew? I don't, you know, I don't see, I see people, you know, I did some searches for it to see if there was a, uh, an Apple knowledge base article about it. And it doesn't appear that there is, but, uh, but you know, a lot of people have, have stumbled on it before me, but, uh, but I never knew about it. So there you go. I share that with you and, uh, and all of you, I, I, I would share it with you, John, but you don't have an iPad, so I can't. So pretend you didn't hear that. Nah, I'm still, still waiting. Yeah, that's fine. That's okay to wait. It just hasn't gripped me yet. I know there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. Someday you may choose I, to get one. Someday you may not. Right. I mean, that's how it works. Uh, cool stuff found. Oh, uh, do you have one? Yeah, go. It's not even a Mac thing, and it doesn't even work right on the Mac. But I'll, I'll tell you what it is, anyways. I ordered it over the weekend. I, I got okay. a special email from uh, Buy.com. Mm-hmm. The Conair TH380 thinner glass body analysis scale, dude. This is like the freaking. This scale does way more than it should. So. Two modes. So it has a removable module. Now, the only problem is that it only works with Windows, so I have to run it under VMware. But it'll suck data out of it. But it, Is this, so is this a like scale. a scale for, for measuring your unmentionables, or is this for measuring your yourself? I, I suppose you could use it to measure whatever you want. But, what, but no. its main but, intention so, so what is... It, well, what, it, what it measures... So one thing is it just tells you the weight and the time. Okay, that's fine. You, you step like, on your, it and it seems your weight. You step on it. Okay. What what's Correct. the say the, the model number again? I want to look at this thing while we're talking about TH380. it. TH380. Got it. But then right. it has a mode where if you if you set it up through the software they provide, which seems to be browser based, it will measure your um, BMI, which it has to know your your height. Sure. Um, percentage body fat, percentage hydration. And bone mass. Yeah. It was like, what? Huh? What? <laughs> it was just so cool. Apparently, oh, it also warns you you should not use it if you have a pacemaker. So apparently it does something with low levels of electricity to measure all this stuff. It would have to. Yeah, right. And then yeah. you store it. But it's just so cool that it goes beyond that. Oh, and recommend a number of calories like based on some sort of formula. The basic number of calories that you need to consume to survive. And then if you eat less than that. But I, I just thought it was neat how it was collecting all this other information through capacitance or, or whatever magic it's doing. So that's the but thing like, that's been posting your weight to Twitter every three hours? No. <laughs> just kidding. Because <laughs> it doesn't go... <laughs> but it was kind of disappointing. Was good, right? it, it, yeah, but it was like, you know, the, the, they had a special buy.com deal. It was like 25 bucks. I'm like, oh. Because I got a mechanical one, and I got to admit, mechanical ones with springs and all that, they're, they're, they're kind of inconsistent. Yeah, this but, one is, is spot on every time, or at least you, it's consistent. It may be consistently wrong. If you are measuring your garage door, they tell you yeah. not to do that with a digital scale, to only do that with a mechanical scale. So there you go. Really? Yeah. 
I had to do that with my uncle the other day because his garage door springs broke and we had to figure out how they were weighted, you know, to, to or rated rather to mm. took the weight of the door. And it was very clear, like in, in multiple separate instructions that we found for doing this. It was like, do not use a digital scale. You need to just use a regular old scale, which thankfully, of course, he had. So. Oh, but anyway, yeah, you can go to thinnertracker.com to measure your uh, all your stuff and track it over time, John. If you put well, the I did that, on. and yeah, and it's interesting because from the browser running under Windows, it somehow accesses a USB device, which I haven't seen a lot of that. It looks like Java, which is even weirder because last I looked at Java, it was very uh, uh, it, it it didn't lend itself to talking to hardware at a low level like huh. that. But they figured it out. Cool. Unfortunately, the documentation, both online and in the manual, says, "Oh, and it works on the Mac too." Then you go to the website, as you probably saw there, it says uh, Mac software coming soon. Coming soon. Like, oh, guys, but th- 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 this is a perfect application for VM. I think I use VMware. You're right. And, uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so other than, you know, waiting a little bit to, to launch Windows to, to and then, you know, uh, it, it comes up and says, oh, you connected a USB device. You want it on Windows or Mac? And I'm like, yeah, Windows, please. And, and actually, both VMware and Parallels let you choose uh, specific devices, and you can say, with this device, always connect it to Windows. Don't connect it to the Mac, so you can actually automate that part of it if you go into the settings. Hey, that's cool you know, stuff. Wow, this just turned into a tip. Hey, man, that's, that's how we work. I don't here. know. I don't. I don't know if it does. Uh, well, I think I'm still on VMware three. I haven't upgraded yet. It keeps coming up saying, "Yeah, you ready to get four? And I'm like, "Yeah, remind me later. <laughs> Uh, I want to briefly mention here something that we mentioned during show 406, which was only to our premium listeners. And and we have more guidance coming on this soon as we sort of sort through exactly what we're doing here. But uh, but in short, we are going back to just one show per week, uh, likely recording at night. For those of you that want to listen on the stream, we will post that to Twitter and Facebook so that you can uh, follow along with us. But uh, but as part of that and kind of just because Apple doesn't currently at least provide a good way for paywalled content to not be a total headache for many of our users, the paywall for premium uh, is coming down. That said, there will still be benefits and in fact more benefits uh, coming for premium users and we will we will uh, discuss what those are going forward you those of you that are premium users know exactly what we're talking about because you got a big long email from us and actually most of you responded to it and uh and i felt it appropriate to reply to each and every one of your responses which uh meant that i was spending a good chunk of my mornings the whole time i was away replying to each and every one of you but it was actually quite a pleasant experience it it was not a burden at all uh, and I was glad to do it. But uh, but that is going away. Uh, the paywall is going away. Premium will be around and it's just morphing into something different. Um, but those of you that are premium listeners can still email us at premium at MacGeekGab.com. Uh, those of you that aren't can email us at feedback at MacGeekGab.com. And as always, premium listeners do get priority, although... Um, we attempt to get to everyone, but premium does get priority. And, and in fact, we had many premium listeners represented in, in the show today here. Uh, Dave, my, my air conditioner was at hurricane level. <laughs> and I, I just want to make sure I did hear you say force 10, huh? <sighs> I, it just says low, medium and high. Oh, okay. Well, you said hurricane level and I think, I think we have, but like you said hurricanes feedback at MacGeekGap.com. 
I did. I said feedback at MacGeekab.com. I also said premium at MacGeekab.com. Well, I'm not going to say that three times. No, but we can talk about the uh, the, you... Bof- the Beaufort huh? scale, which is what uh, measures hurricanes what? at different force levels, I think. Beaufort? Beauf- Actually, at force, force 12 is uh, is a hurricane, not Force 10. I got that wrong. So that's the Beaufort scale. Beaufort? Sounds, yeah. sounds like he lives down south, maybe. Well, um, they got a lot of hurricanes down there, so it kind of makes sense. Or is it French? Yeah, it was uh, Irish born Irish born Royal Navy officer Francis Beaufort. Irish, yeah, oh, oh. Sir Francis Beaufort to you and me. Well, I was off on that one. Yeah, okay. man. Sorry, sir Francis. Right. Well, he, uh, I think he passed away. Still, good to respect him, but probably don't need to offer him your apologies. Uh, you can, of course, call us. And at least currently, the phone number is the same for everyone, and that is 206-666-GEEK, which John is... Geek. That's right. (laughs) Or if you're numerically inclined, that's also 4335. It is. You can visit the show notes at MacGeekGab.com. You can Skype us to MacGeekGab.com. What else can they do, Mr. Braun? They could leave an iTunes comment. Mm. So you can go to the podcast on iTunes. You could leave a comment. You can give a rating uh, ranging from five stars to five stars. Right? Five stars to five stars. I think they changed. <laughs> yes, that sounds right. That's that's the, the, the low end. It's, we don't have 12 stars to match the Beaufort scale. So, yeah, it's just five stars. That's the minimum and maximum you can give us. That's right. Um, no, it's one to five stars. I know, John. It's fun though. I liked I liked where you were going with it. I figured I'd I'd join you. It was good. Uh, you can you can find us on Twitter. He's John F. Braun. Pilot Pete's that guy that's not here, but I'm hoping the evening's uh, recording will make it so that we have him more frequently. Uh, he's Pilot Pete, as I said. Mac Geek gets you the show notes and everything. Mac Observer gets you all the headlines from uh, from the Mac Observer, and you can follow me at Dave Hamilton. Anything else there, John? What time? Oh, my God. Why am I up so late? Yeah, you got to work in the morning. All right. Uh, We'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast. He converts this show to AAC as well. So go listen to his podcast uh, because you're certainly appreciating his hard work here. And that's a great show. It's all about iOS stuff, and it's good. He's got good stuff going on there. Cashfly, of course, provides all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you, and we appreciate that. Podcast Marketplace includes BB Edit, as we said, from Bare Bones. Text Expander 4 from Smile Gazelle Gazelle.com Sell all your Apple stuff And lastly but not leastly We would like to thank all of you For listening and interacting And subscribing We do appreciate it we, uh, We've been doing this for 7 years And we would love to be doing it for 7 more Thanks to you. Don't get caught. Made up.